So, Revelation chapter 2. We start in this chapter with the seven letters to the seven churches. And Jesus is the author. He addresses them to the angel of the church. Each church has an angel that represents it in heaven. We talked about last week that this angel is sometimes believed to be a human being, uh, perhaps even the pastor of the church that represents the body. But the difficulty with that is that nowhere in the New Testament usage of this word uh, does the word angel refer to anything other than an angelic being. And so uh, we're to, I think, rightly believe this is an angelic representative of the local church And each church has one. In fact, we read in the beginning of chapter 2 that these angels are held. They are stars that are held in the hand of the Lord Jesus himself. And so Jesus is addressing the angelic representative of each local church with a message that is particularly akin and attuned to the situation in these local churches. And these churches are the churches of Asia Minor. They are on a mail route. Uh, If you look at the ancient mail routes of of Asia Minor, you'll see that this sort of follows a circle. Um, And so this letter would have been sent first to the church at Ephesus, the entirety of the Revelation, most likely, and then uh, would have been copied down after it was read to the entire congregation. And then it would have been sent on to the church at Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and so forth. And so this ancient word is being sent to the people of God so that they who have an ear would hear what the Spirit says to the church. These words are not just for the individual churches themselves. They are for all of God's people at all times and all places. And we see that by the fact that it is a call from Jesus Christ himself to the church to listen, not just to what the Spirit would say to their particular church, but to all of the churches of Christ. When we look at the church at Ephesus, there is a word that comes here uh, for the people of God concerning leaving their first love. Uh, last week, we talked about the dangers that Jesus sees for his church. I'm going to read these uh, fairly quickly, and then if you um, want more information, I'll put the um, audio from last week up online. You can go back and check that out um, maybe later this week. But the seven dangers that Jesus sees for his church, to the church at Ephesus, he sees the danger of leaving your first love. We talked about the fact that the first love is often thought to be God himself, or maybe even specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet to separate or divorce that from the love for God's people is to read more into this than is there. You can't separate the love of God from the love of people. It's impossible to say that I love Jesus, I just don't love his church. To love God is to love the people of God. And the danger in Ephesus is that they have left their first love. They have become so enamored with being theologically correct that they have lost their practical compassion for God's people. The danger that he sees in the church at Smyrna is fearing personal suffering. And there's a danger when suffering comes into play that it becomes dominant and it keeps us from obedience. God's people have to hear the command to not fear. To the church at Pergamum, there is a danger of tolerating false teaching. We will hear that tonight as we look at uh, the warning that Jesus gives about embracing the the act of Balaam and and, and tolerating the pattern of the Nicolaitans. There's, There's a practice there of theological compromise that is dangerous for the people of God. And there's a danger that's talked about in his address to Thyatira. It's the practice of loose living. When we become immoral in our ways, when we lack piety, when we don't pursue holiness, not a holiness that stands before men, but a holiness that is reflective of the God that has made us holy, then we're in danger. To the church at Sardis, Jesus Jesus offers a, a danger, a warning of danger, and it is quitting before finishing. The danger in Sardis is that, that they have opportunity. There's, a, there's an open door that's set before the church at Philadelphia and before the church at Sardis, there's, a, there's an opportunity for them to be faithful unto the end and yet the call that they might actually quit before they finish. 
that they have given up on the good work that God had for them, and instead they only look good, while inside they are like a tomb. Philadelphia is presented with an open door. And the danger that we learn from their faithful pattern is that we might stall instead of follow. When we stall out, when Jesus sets an open door before us and instead of walking through it, we, we hold back, we sit on the sidelines, we stall out, then we're in danger of not, not enjoying his life forever. And then the seventh danger is that that's mentioned to the church at Laodicea. It's the danger of remaining indifferent to God's calling. There is a call in the life of God for us as his people. And the church at Laodicea is indifferent. They're lukewarm. They're neither hot or cold. They can't make up their mind. They tried to ride the fence. They're seeking morally neutral ground. And God says that he is, he's repulsed by this. It causes him to want to spew them out of his mouth. There are rewards that are offered to these churches and to the people of God. And we talked about those last week as well. Each one of these letters to the churches of Asia Minor ends with a word uh, to those who conquer, to the one who conquers. And there are rewards that are promised to the one who conquers. To the one who conquers in the letter to the Ephesians, it's the right to eat of the tree of life. And to the church at Smyrna, it's the right to not be hurt by the second death. And to Pergamum, it's the gift of hidden manna and the white stone with a new name. And Thyatira promises the authority over the nations to rule with a rod of iron and to become the morning star. And to the church at Sardis, Jesus says that the one who conquers will be clothed in white robes and his name will not be blotted out, but will indeed be confessed before the Father. To the church at Philadelphia, Jesus says, the one who conquers will be made a pillar in the temple of God and will be marked by the name of God. And to the church at Laodicea, Jesus says that the one who conquers will be given the right to reign with Christ himself. The church at Ephesus, Jesus says, is a church that has been successful. They've rooted out all sorts of theological error. But in their zeal to be right, they've missed the opportunity to love God's people. And so Jesus warns them that their struggle of leaving their first love, it centers on this imbalance. And he calls them to turn away from that, to remember what they did at first. And in fact, Jesus offers them a path towards redemption. At first, he offers them this word. He says that they should remember. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Jesus wants them to go back in their minds and hearts to where they walked faithfully with the Lord and where they knew the wonder of his grace and where they had a vibrant relationship with him. He wants them to recall that because in going back to that place, they find the place to begin again. He says that redemption is not only about remembering, it's about repenting. He says in verse 5 that as they remember the works they did at first, they should repent. Repentance is not just the confession of our sin, it is the turning away from our sin. It's coming back toward the Father. It's pursuing holiness. The third step in that path toward redemption is re-engaging. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus they should do the works they did at first. We re-engage in the ministry, in the work that God has given for us to do. It is telling that it's the church at Ephesus that has left its first love. Because if we look back at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, we get a portrait, don't we? Of what their life together is supposed to look like. And in fact, what we find in Ephesians chapter 4 is that God's very desire for his people is that they should attain to the unity of the faith building one another up in love. And yet they've left that. And so Jesus calls them to go back to the work they did at first. And then they're to respond. The road to redemption, it is marked out by a response to God himself. Jesus says in verse 7, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a call to respond to God's voice himself and to the working of his Holy Spirit. 
So we come to the church at Smyrna. To the church at Smyrna, we find a call to recognize that this life, it's worth sacrificing. It's worth laying down for Jesus himself. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are, they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna was, like Ephesus, a harbor city. It's 35 miles north of Ephesus. It's the modern-day city of Izmir, Turkey. In that day, it was marked by wealth and intellectual capital. It was the birthplace of, uh, of Homer, and so it's known for its, its works of philosophy and its tradition of, of, of largely academic work. It's an important center of idolatrous worship. The practice of worshiping the mother goddess was uh, enshrined in Smyrna. But it was also, and maybe most importantly, marked by the worship of the emperor. It was the first city to be granted the right to construct a temple to Tiberius Caesar. Sixty years after the writing of the Revelation, it would be the site of Polycarp's martyrdom. Polycarp was the bishop, the, the leader of the church at Smyrna in the middle part of the second century. And so it would be the place where he gave his life on account of his faith in the Lord Jesus. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that this is a place where God's people are called to lay down their lives. Polycarp was just another in the long line of those from Smyrna who would be faithful unto death. Jesus, as he does in each of these letters, begins by identifying himself. He says to the angel, this is verse 8, he says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So Jesus uses two images here to identify himself. The first is that he is the first and the last. To identify himself as the first and the last is to say that he is equivalent with God himself. That's the first thing Jesus wants you to understand, that he is equal to the Father. The father in, in Jewish history was the one who possessed this eternal quality, the one who always was, who was from the beginning and would be to the end. And so for Jesus to say that he is the first and the last is for him to equate himself to the father God. And then Jesus says that he's the one who died and came to life. So he's telling us this, that he is powerful over death. Jesus wants you to understand, and he wanted those believers at Smyrta to understand that death didn't have to have the last word in their lives, and it doesn't have to have the last word in yours. By the fact that Jesus says that he is the one who died and came to life, Jesus is saying that death did not have the last word for him, that it is a conquered foe, it is an enemy that is defeated, and there is a promise because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. There is a promise that those who identify with him are not undone by death, but instead can conquer as well. In each of these letters, Jesus tells us what he knows. You remember in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says that, that he not only holds the stars in his hand, but he walks among the lampstands. He's in their midst. The lampstands are the churches. And so that's Jesus' way of saying that he knows his people. In Scripture, the word to know is a very familiar word. It's, a, it's not just an academic or ethereal knowledge. It's something that is personal and experienced. Jesus has firsthand experience of his people. And what he knows about the church at Smyrna is this. He knows the trouble and the troublers of his church. Jesus knows the trouble and the troublers of his church. 
The trouble of Jesus' church is this, that in a city of financial and philosophical wealth, the believers in Smyrna endured physical hardship, social rejection, and financial impoverishment. In a city that's marked by financial and philosophical wealth, the believers in Smyrna endured physical hardship, social rejection, and financial impoverishment. You see in verse 9 that Jesus says, he says there, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It's incredibly important for us, particularly in our modern culture, to make note of this reality, that neither Jesus nor the Apostle John intended anything anti-Semitic in these words. And you might think, well, of course, Jesus would never speak in an anti-Semitic way. And yet, you have to know that in the history of translation and interpretation of this passage, it has often been used in an anti-Semitic way. It's often been used to speak poorly of those who claim identity and affiliation with the history of Israel and the Jewish people. So you want to be clear that neither Jesus nor the Apostle John are writing words to the church intended to be anti-Semitic. Instead, they are intended to be words of encouragement to those who are truly the people of Israel. See, you and I, because we live in the 21st century, we make a distinction between Christianity and Judaism that was not known in the first century. In the first century, they understood that Judaism found its fullest nature, its truest fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Those who were followers of the way, those who were first called Christians at Antioch, those who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who were from a Jewish background, did not believe that they were embracing a new religion, but thought they were following out their faith to its rightful end. And because of that, it has implications for how we see these words today. We're not to understand them as being anti-Semitic, speaking against the Jewish people. Instead, we're to understand that what Jesus is trying to do is offer a word of encouragement to those faithful Jewish believers who have followed the word of the Lord pointing to him. See, Jesus draws a distinction he says there, there are those who, who believe, those who follow him, those who serve him, those who trust that he is the Messiah. And then he says there are Jews who are not really Jews. That is to say they have some ethnic association to Abraham. They, they have a political affinity to uh, the Jewish people. They're marked out socially as belonging to Israel, those scattered away from Judea. But these are not people who have followed Judaism to the Messiah. Instead, they've rejected Jesus. And in rejecting Jesus, they have rejected the God that loved them and created them and called them to be his own particular possession. It's at this point that we have to be clear. There isn't one way of salvation for the Jews and another for the Gentiles. There's only one name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved, and it is the name of Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the Savior of Jews and Greeks, of men and women, of slaves and free persons. Jesus calls all people, those who are poor and those who are rich, those who are politically conservative and politically liberal, those who are free in the United States of America and those who suffer under, under political oppression in foreign lands, Jesus calls all people to love and serve and follow him and be faithful unto death. And so for Jesus to say to the church at Smyrna that there are those Jews who say they are but are not, but instead are a synagogue of Satan, it's not a word that is anti-Semitic. It is a word offered to encourage his people to know the difference between those who believe and those who don't. Because you see, it really doesn't matter what sort of religious brand you put on your unbelief. If you don't believe in Jesus, you are lined up against him. <laughs> 
and on the side of the devil himself. A couple of years ago, well, several years ago at this point, I preached something like that. There was a man in the church that I served, dear, dear man, who took great offense to that statement. Left, was gone for quite some time, over a year. I went to the house, I made the phone calls, I tried to reconcile. There was no reconciliation to be had. And as you can imagine, happened sometimes in churches, the deacons said, what happened? And I said, I'm pretty sure what happened is conviction. Because if you take umbrage to the statement that you are either aligned with Jesus or you are against him, then you either don't understand the gospel you believe or you don't believe the gospel. In that particular man's life, several months went by. Time came and there was a celebration service, much like the one we'll have November 20th when we celebrate our church's life. And he came that day and he found me during the welcome time. And he said, I want you to know I've come to know Jesus. What a great joy. Tears from my face. And I went back to our deacon body and I said, I just want you to know, this is why we've got to be faithful. This is why we have to draw the line in the sand. This is why we have to be willing to say, this is what a real follower of Jesus is and what a real follower of Jesus isn't. Because if we believe and if we practice as though there is some sort of morally neutral ground where some people get to ride the fence between following Jesus or working against him, then we leave people lost and undone in their sin and they don't even know it. Jesus wants those who follow him to know that they really are with him and that all of those religious people, however well-intentioned, who who deny his reality, they are aligned with the devil himself. He knows the trouble of his church. The believers in Smyrna, they're enduring physical hardship, social rejection, financial impoverishment. You see that in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, Jesus says. He says, I know the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Essentially what's happened is that Judaism is a sanctioned official religion. It's, it's, it's allowed to be practiced. And there's now divide between those who have a Jewish ethnicity, who have followed Jesus, and those who have denied Jesus. And the fraction between them causes those who have followed Jesus to be not only kicked out of the synagogue, but they are considered to be anathema in the community. They begin to be on the outskirts. They face a rejection in the marketplace. Uh, they're caused to endure the harassment of those in the city. They begin to truly face difficulty on account of their faith in Christ. I want you to just note here two words of hope for those who struggle financially. Jesus here recognizes the impoverishment, uh, the poverty, true poverty of those in the church at Smyrna. We want to be careful in all of our study of the word, our teaching of the word, that we never equate poverty or wealth with righteousness or immorality. It is difficult for a rich man to come into the kingdom of God. Jesus teaches us that, and yet that doesn't mean it's impossible. And the reality of financial poverty doesn't mean that a person is righteous. And yet, Jesus does offer a word of hope to those who face difficult financial circumstances. And I think it's worth us mentioning. So these two words of hope we find in verse 9. The first is this. Jesus Christ, I, I want you to know, Jesus Christ personally experienced a life of poverty, so he is acquainted with this struggle. Jesus personally experienced a life of poverty, so he's acquainted with this struggle. When Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, that word know, it's, it's the act of experiencing something. Jesus is giving us this as though he has been through it himself. He has personal affinity to this. And when we go back and we look at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we recognize that Jesus did not come in a stately manner. He had no form or 
humbliness that we should be drawn to him, but instead he humbled himself and he took upon himself the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men. And because of that, Jesus is able to identify with and offer compassion to those who find themselves in difficult financial straits. The second thing that I believe offers a word of hope to those who struggle financially is this. Jesus Christ prioritizes the engagement of his person and work by faith and warns the wealthy how difficult it is for them to enter the kingdom of God. See, sometimes we are still influenced by the Puritans and that puritanical work ethic that saw financial success as a sign of favor or divine grace or God's care over one person over and against another. So it's important for us to look at the word a little more carefully and see that while we ought to work hard as unto the Lord, And while we ought to steward our finances well, financial gain or loss is not in and of itself a sign of the favor of God. And so those who find themselves impoverished should not look down upon themselves and say that this is a sign of God's rejection or a sign of his judgment necessarily. And instead should recognize that there is something far more important than money in the kingdom of God, and it is faith and obedience to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 9 that though they are experiencing this difficulty, they are impoverished, he says they're rich. And the reason that Jesus can say about the church at Smyrna that they are rich is because of their faithfulness, even in the face of great difficulty. So Jesus knows the trouble of his church, that they face physical hardship and social rejection and financial impoverishment. And he knows the troublers of his church, those who say that they are Jews, but in fact they are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. And then Jesus commands his church not to fear, but to be faithful unto death. If you look at verse 11, you see there, it says he, excuse me, verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. See, Jesus here is offering to the people of God a word of instruction in the face of great difficulty. Jesus tells them they're going to suffer. That's not something we hear a lot about in the church in the 21st century. In fact, more often than not, our world is influenced by a prosperity gospel that seems to discredit all forms of human suffering as though they are signs of disobedience and a lack of faith rather than signs of obedience and real faith. So it's good for us to remind ourselves that suffering, it's not only possible, it is part and parcel of the Christian experience. In fact, in Peter's address to the church that is scattered abroad, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Peter offers a, a word to them about their suffering. And he says to those elect exiles that are scattered He says to them that their adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And then Peter goes on to tell them that they shouldn't be discouraged in the midst of their adversity or their suffering because it is experienced by all those who follow Christ. It's something that every believer has to endure. Peter calls the believer to recognize that his suffering isn't unique among the people of God. It's something that everybody experiences. And though we have different forms of suffering, all believers suffer in one manner or another. Certainly the church at Smyrna was about to suffer. And so Jesus offers them three aspects of their suffering as he speaks to them about their situation. The first thing that Jesus says about them is that the believers will suffer imprisonment because of their faithfulness. He says in verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. It's going to happen. They are going to be imprisoned. 
They are going to suffer. It is a reality. And the reason is not because they've done anything wrong. Growing up, I, I like all of us, I imagine, I had parents who gave me prime instruction on obedience. And they taught me at an early age that disobedience brought wrath and judgment. Sometimes it brought wrath in the form of a spanking. And sometimes if I didn't learn to be molded into the way that I should go, it might bring wrath from the state. And so I remember growing up having this image in my mind of, of what a horror it would be to be arrested that that would be the pinnacle of my having fallen from grace and not walked in the way that I should. But as I got older and I began to read more for myself, I learned that there were lots of people who were imprisoned who walked closely with the Lord. In fact, the, the first time that I remember wondering how I could bring all of these things together and learn to reconcile them in my mind that I should never be imprisoned. That would be the pinnacle of my disobedience, and yet you could be imprisoned for doing something good was when I first learned about the imprisonment of Dr. King. And when you realize that there are people who stand for righteousness and fight on the cause of right, who face adversity on account of their faith, you begin to put things in perspective. I still don't want to wind up in the Dallas County Jail. But I understand. Much like James says that there are those who suffer for righteousness and that is to their credit. It's of no credit if we suffer on account of our immorality. And Jesus brings that into view here. The believers at Smyrna will suffer because of their faithfulness. They'll suffer not only because of their faithfulness, they will suffer imprisonment as a test of their faith. Jesus says that. He says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. See, Jesus is at work even when the enemy is against his people. Even when the devil himself rears his head and causes his people to endure hardship and difficulty and suffering and tribulation, God is in control even then. And he takes what is meant for evil and decides to use it and redeem it for the refining of his people. See, Jesus wants his people to be strong and pure. And that purity and strength comes through testing. It comes when we're tested, when we're tried, when we're pulled and stretched when we find ourselves in the fire and we are not consumed. He wants them to know that they are going to experience a test of their faith. And then Jesus says to them that their suffering of imprisonment will be for a limited time. You notice there that he says in verse 10, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. The inclusion of 10 days here doesn't necessarily mean it's 10 literal days. We've, we've walked closely enough with this book so far in just five weeks that we know that not every number is given to be literal. It's, these numbers are often figurative. But the inclusion of 10 is maybe symbolic of two things. The first is that it is a complete period of time. 10 often signifies completion. And it's also, and more importantly, the symbol of a limited period of time. And so one of the things that Jesus wants them to understand is that they will suffer for a limited period of time. But here's what's important. It's not that they'll suffer for a limited period of time simply because their suffering will come to an end, but because it will come to an end in their death. See, because what Jesus says next is important. Some of you will be thrown into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation, be faithful unto death. You and I, if we knew that we were walking into a difficult moment, if we were going to do a period of suffering or trial or trouble or tribulation, and we knew that it would only last for a moment, 
just a few days, just a few weeks, just a few months, if we knew the time frame, but that on the other side of it, there would be celebration and life and the returning of freedom and the renewal of relationships with family and friends, we could endure that. And yet Jesus says that on the other side of this trouble is actually death for some of you. That the way out is through death itself. And yet Jesus calls them in the midst of that to be faithful. Why? Because Jesus is the faithful one who faced death for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, the writer to the Hebrews says. Jesus wants them to understand that he has overcome death. He is the one who died and then lived. And because of that, they don't have to be destroyed by it. He calls them to respond in two ways. The first is he says, do not fear. Jesus says that they are not to fear at the beginning of verse 10. And they're not to fear because their suffering is limited. They're not to fear because their suffering is controlled. They are not to fear because their suffering has been conquered by Christ himself. Though they suffer death, it will not be the final word for them. Not only are they not to fear, but Jesus says they are to be faithful. Negatively, they are to reject fear, and positively, they are to embrace faith. Now, I know, in the face of the pandemic, well-meaning people said something akin to that, fear over faith, faith over fear. Not fear over faith, don't embrace that, that's not good. Faith over fear. It's good, but perhaps, perhaps a bit trite in the face of a pandemic. Perhaps abusing what the real intention of the word is. Because Jesus has something far more important in view than our endurance of an earthly pandemic. What Jesus has in view for us is the endurance of a test of our devotion to him. And if we are to endure in our devotion to him, it will be because we reject the fear of the God of this world and we remain faithful to the God who ever lives in us. Jesus offers a reward in every one of these letters. Jesus says that there is something that comes for fidelity and perseverance and endurance. That's no less the case here. Jesus says that those who are faithful unto death will be given the crown of life. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The crown of life should not be seen as a physical crown. Sometimes you may have, have read uh, of the sort of the five crown theology. There's the crown of righteousness and the crown of life. There are different crowns that some people will take that we're given in heaven and that we get to give back to Jesus. Sometimes that's kind of a popular thought. But I don't think we're to see a physical crown here. I think instead we're to understand that a crown is a reward. It's something given to a victor. It's something that is assigned to the one who overcomes. And so the crown of life isn't, it's not a crown, it's, it's life itself. The reward given to the one who is victorious, who endures to the end, is eternal life. It's the fact that he is spared participation in the second death. The second death is the judgment and the condemnation of all those who stand opposed to God and the Lamb. And so here is a promise that the one who is faithful unto death is the one who is given eternal life, the one who overcomes. Then Jesus offers a word to the church at Pergamum. You see that in verse 12. Let's read verses 12 through 17 together. He says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, Write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and yet you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you 
where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pergamum was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was 55 miles north of Ephesus. The very first temple built to Emperor Augustus was built in Pergamum. It was a city that had a massive library with over 200,000 volumes. It was the second largest library in the world after that at Alexandria. The chief god of the city was Eclipsus, a serpent god whom people from all over the world came to seek healing. In many ways, Pergamum was the heart of hell. Jesus says it's the seat of Satan. It's where his throne is. And the way I'm going to say that is it's the heart of hell itself. And the question for those who dwell in the heart of hell is how are they to live in faithfulness to Christ? I say that because Pergamum was a place that was marked by immorality and infidelity to the standards of a holy God. It was a place where there was wildness of, of all sorts was a place where idolatrous worship bore its full fruit as God's people rebelled and as the people of earth rebelled against God. Because of that, we might wonder, how were they to live in obedience to God? And how are we, we who live in a Pergamum of our own day, we who live in a world that is opposed to God and His ways and who a world that has embraced and allowed idolatry to bear its full fruit, how are we to live? It's a good question. Jesus identifies Himself in His letter to Pergamum by saying the words of Him who has the sharp two-edged sword. We read about this in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Jesus, uh, he identifies himself as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings on the earth. And Jesus tells us there, he tells us that he speaks sharply. He has this sword that pierces and this sword that, that is overwhelmingly capable of dividing those who stand against him. He says in verse 16 of chapter 1 that in his right hand he held the seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And so now Jesus brings that image back. It's not to say that Jesus literally has a sword coming out of his mouth. It's to say that his words are that powerful. It's to say that his words have that kind of authority they are piercing and dividing and authoritative and controlling. They are delivering and they are damning. Jesus speaks, and when he does, he demands a response, and he always gets it. Jesus knows something about the church at Pergamum as he does every other church. He knows the spiritual condition of his people and the world in which they dwell. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. You, you, you dwell in the seat of Satan. You dwell in the heart of hell. It's the place where immorality and idolatry are thriving. And you are all alone, it would seem. Jesus says, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. That word witness there... It's the same word that we have for our word martyr. It's the word marturion. It's, it means witness. It means someone who has seen something and testifies to its reality. 
In the first century, the word witness didn't carry the sense of death. Uh, martyrdom wasn't necessarily equated with death at this point. And yet, and yet there is this one who becomes a martyr, Antipas, his faithful witness, the one who, who talked about what he'd seen and experienced of Jesus. He was killed among them, or Satan dwells. And yet even as Jesus knows the spiritual condition of his people, that they're faithful and that they've not denied him, and that even in the face of, of such persecution that caused one of their own to be killed, they have not run from him, they have tolerated immorality. See, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know exactly what the teaching of the Nicolaitans was. We don't know who this group was. But from Jesus' words to the church at Pergamum, it would seem that they are connected to the same sort of immoral patterns embraced by Balaam. Balaam was prevented by the Spirit of God, Numbers 22 to 24, from cursing Israel, though he wanted to, and was compelled to bless them. But he found another way to be subversive to the people of God. He encouraged Israel to join with the Moabites, to intermarry among the tribes, and to join in their sacrifices and their sexual immorality to idolatrous gods. Because of Balaam's incitement of the people of Israel to rebel against the Lord, 24,000 members of the nation of Israel were killed for their unfaithfulness. All of that is in view as Jesus addresses the church at Pergamum because they're living amongst a, amongst a people who are immoral, who are turning against the Lord. They've embraced idolatry. And if you, if you don't know this, it's okay, but if you, don't, if you don't know, make sure you understand that any time in the ancient world there was, there was spiritual idolatry, there was also sexual immorality connected to it. Always. Uh, temple prostitution, both male and female, was connected to all of the idolatrous cults. And so what's going on is that the church at Pergamum is living in a world that is filled with spiritual idolatry and sexual immorality. And because they have faced difficulty and hardship on account of their faith, such that even one of their own members has been killed, some of them have decided maybe it would be better to compromise. Maybe we would have greater standing. Maybe we would have less persecution. Maybe we wouldn't face such difficulty. Maybe we would be more popular if we would just embrace some pieces of how the world works. And so much like Balaam teaching the people of Israel to come alongside the Moabites and embrace their way of life in order for there to be peace, there were those in the church at Pergamum who were calling the people of God to embrace spiritual idolatry and sexual immorality. And Jesus calls them to see that this is dangerous for them. So we ask the question, what are you to do when you live in the heart of hell? When you live in a land that is immoral, in a place that's marked by spiritual idolatry, when you live in a place that has gone far from the Lord, what are you to do to be faithful to Jesus? Well, Jesus offers, I think, four steps. Very quickly, they're these. The first is this. We're to hold fast to the name of Jesus himself. Jesus says that he knows this about his people at Pergamum. He says there that you have held fast my name. To know the name of Jesus is to, is to identify with who he is. It's to be marked out by him. It's to, be, it's to be stamped as belonging to him. Jesus wants us to hold fast to who he is. Not to deny him before the world, but to hold fast to, to cling to who he is. 
How do you live in a world that's marked by such immorality? You hold fast to the name of Jesus, and then you do not deny the faith of Jesus. He says that about the church at at Pergamum. He says, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. When Jesus talks about his faith, he's talking about the hope of the gospel. He's talking about the the word of the Lord that's been given to them that's a word of of good news for all people. It's a word of life and it's a word of salvation. It's a word of hope. Jesus has brought to the world a word that is a better word, a word that saves and sanctifies unto the end. And Jesus says that if you're going to endure and live in a world that is marked by such immorality, you not only must hold fast to who I am, you must not deny the principles of the faith. You you don't have to look very far. Even in the news lines of our own week to see the fact that there are those who have historically been connected to the Lord Jesus Christ who've decided maybe if we give way on pieces or parts of the faith we could have a greater effectiveness in the world. Just this week, I I read an article. Dr. Beck Taylor is the president of Samford University. and If you followed any of this, you know that Samford's had some difficulty in recent days regarding the issue of human sexuality. And of course, there are those that would rather Samford embrace all things LGBTQ+. And so while they minister compassionately to students who are in that camp, Sanford's continued to hold fast and to say we will not deny the orthodox faith that teaches that human sexuality flourishes in obedience to the will and work of the Lord when it's between one man and one woman together for life in Christ. And of course, there are all these people who are Sanford alums who are in the ministry in various denominations that have denied the faith once delivered for all the saints, who've signed an open letter to the president of the university demanding that he turn. And I was so thankful to see that Dr. Taylor put out a statement to the university community and to all those that would listen this week to say that we continue to minister compassionately to students who find themselves in this camp, but we will not deny the historic Orthodox faith You cannot hold fast to the name of Jesus while you undercut the principles of the gospel that he preached. How do you live in the heart of hell? You hold fast to the name of Jesus. You do not deny the faith of Jesus. You do not practice moral compromise. For every person Balaam led astray and for every teacher in the church at Pergamum leading others astray, you have to go back to the one doing the leading and say they wouldn't lead you to a place they haven't gone themselves. If Balaam leads you to moral compromise, he is morally compromised himself. If there are people in the church at Pergamum leading you to moral compromise, they are morally compromised themselves. And so it's incumbent, it's incumbent that we who live in a world marked by such immorality and opposition to the will and way of God, it's incumbent upon us to walk in holiness, to pursue God actively, to not practice moral compromise. There should be something different about us from the world that we live in. The people of Elkdale should be different from those who are unbelieving in the city of Selma. It's not to say that we hold up our own righteousness. It's not to say that we are perfect people. We're all sinners. We would admit that and acknowledge that first and foremost. But because of the working of the Holy Spirit inside of us and the the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus, there ought to be something that tugs at our heart to say, you ought to try to pursue me. You ought to walk in holiness. You ought to rise in the morning and lay down at night with a hunger in your heart for God himself. 
And the more that you satisfy your hunger for God with the things of God, the more that the Holy Spirit causes you to walk in holiness. It's not piety for piety's sake. It's the disciplining of ourselves, as Paul said to Timothy, for the purpose of godliness. We pursue holiness. We fail to embrace moral compromise so that we might draw nearer to God and endure to the end. And then the fourth step I would tell you is this, that where we don't practice moral compromise, we also don't promote it. We don't promote it. If you live long enough and you walk faithfully with the Lord, you're going to encounter people who don't, and you're going to get put in the hot seat. You're going to get asked the questions. They're going to look at you and say, well, what do you think about? And they'll fill in the blank. You won't, you won't have to bring it up. They will. And they're looking to see, do you really believe what you say you believe? Your answer might not convince them to believe it, but it will say a tremendous amount about you. I was visiting a church member a couple of years ago. I had a family member come in while I was there making the visit. A family member had been struggling in their walk with the Lord because of the spiritual decisions that their children were making. And this family member looked at me and said, Preacher, what do you think about people who are gay? God just send them straight to hell? Well, that was a little strong of a question for 10 o'clock on a Tuesday, but and I said what I often say, which is God doesn't send anybody to hell because of their sin alone. He sends people to hell because of their rejection of his offer of salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. But if you reject the offer of life in Jesus Christ, Practicing same-sex sexual activity will get you there. Being an idolater will get you there. Slandering your neighbor will get you there. See, all of our sins cause us to fall short, whatever they are. Sins of the tongue, sins of the mind, sins of the hands. Our sins are immoral in the sight of a holy God. They cause us to be far from him. And the only way for us to be drawn near to him is through his son Jesus. If we reject Jesus, then we, we fail to have life in him. And if we embrace Jesus Christ by faith, then there's a change of heart that comes. And those sins have to be put to death one by one. You can't promote moral compromise. Just because it's difficult, just because the conversation's hard, you can't turn your back on what Jesus says. Jesus calls his church to repent. He says in verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When Jesus promises that he'll come and war against them with the sword of his mouth, Jesus isn't just talking about that judgment that comes at the end of days. I think what Jesus is saying is that there's a sifting that's going to take place in the story of human history in the church at Pergamum. This is a church that has people who are morally compromised and are promoting moral compromise. This is a church where they've embraced false teaching. And because of that, it will mean the destruction of the whole people of God. One bad apple will spoil the bunch. And so Jesus says, if you don't repent, the whole church, if you don't stop tolerating those who promote immorality, then I will come and bring my sword and I will war against you. And then Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. There was a a belief in the 
in the extra biblical literature, there was a belief that that the pot of manna from the Ark of the Covenant had been taken during Jeremiah's day and hidden, and that it would and that it would come and be revealed at the end of days when the Messiah came. So it's possible that that's what John and what Jesus himself has in view as he speaks to the church and talks about the bringing of that day when the Messiah comes at last. And he says, I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on it, the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. These white stones were used in antiquity for many reasons. Sometimes they were used in a court of law when an acquittal was made. Uh, the, the defendant was given a white stone as a sign that he indeed had been acquitted, that the charges were canceled against him. And sometimes these white stones, they were given as an entrance ticket. They were a way of showing that you were invited to a banquet, to a, a, a gathering, a celebration. If you think about that, what Jesus is saying is that the one who repents and conquers, the one who endures and is faithful, the one who perseveres to the end, the one who learns how to live in the heart of hell itself and not be undone by it, to that one is given the clearance of all their sins and admission into God's presence forever. So to him who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we're grateful for these warnings that come from your word, but more than the warnings, we're grateful for the wonderful words of life that give us encouragement and cause us, God, to draw even closer to you. Lord, I pray where we have sensed conviction of the Holy Spirit, may we quickly and heartily repent lest you should come and make war against us. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.